Hi, I'm Christy Hurt, the founder of The Collab. We are a collective of brand professionals sharing our career stories. Every week, we pair up two members and they interview each other. So you'll get to hear one episode this week and one next week. You can join us too. Sign up at jointhecollab.com and then tell your story. Hi, my name is Sarah Webb. I've just recently joined The Collab. I am super excited today to be interviewing Gregory Barrett, who is the head of special operations as part of Global Chanel Business Development Group based in New York. Welcome, Gregory. Thank you. I'm super excited to chat to you and understand your career development to date, what brought you here and and know how you joined in the industry. So maybe we should we start where you grew up and, and where you went to school? Yes, absolutely. Let's do that. If I start from the beginning, I was born in Lille in, in France. You can probably hear a slight accent still, despite the fact that I've been here for 20 years in New York. I was born in Lille and it's, it's the fourth or fifth largest city in, in France, but let's consider it a relatively small town and actually grew up there and I went to all the way to business school there. So I graduated from, uh, it's the equivalent of an MBA when I was, I guess, 22, 23. There was, it's a good school in France. It's considered in the top three or four schools over there. So I, I actually never thought I would leave my region, my entire family is from there. It's not a lot of diversity in my family and everyone was very attached to the land. So when I grew up, I always imagined living there forever. And then some things happened and everything changed. And I moved to New York for my first job. And I thought I would stay in New York for six to 12 months. And I've been more or less in the city for 23 years. So you never really know what's going to happen in your life. It was a, a radical change, but I'm glad I did the move. And what, once you left business school, what took you to, I saw you started in customer services and analytics. What, what took you to the fashion industry? Yes, it's kind of uh, a, a lot of randomness, I would say, serendipity, maybe destiny. I don't know. I don't know how, depending on how, on how you look at it. When, when you're in, in business school, you do a bunch of internships and I did my very first one in the gaming industry, a company called Ubisoft that's still around, actually one of the, one of the biggest ones, but I tried different industries. So I did gaming. I worked for Coca-Cola for a little while in sales, going from supermarket to supermarkets, trying to sell more Coca-Cola to people. <laughs> it was a very interesting experience to work for a big company like that. And then I did my last internship, the, the most significant one at Louis Vuitton, so part of LVMH in 1999. So really tried three very different jobs and three different industries for internships. Then I just saw a kind of randomly a job opening, kind of a job opening. It was not a real job opening. It's one of those long sort of expat internships for young graduates. That's, that's a format that exists in France. Actually, a lot of people start their career overseas with this format. And so it was in a bank and I said, well, I haven't tried finance. I tried sales, I tried gaming, I tried luxury. And so I, I was supposed to be sent to Hong Kong and I was preparing myself to be sent to Hong Kong for this, this job of really junior, junior analysts in mergers and acquisitions, actually in that bank, it was in the investment bank part of this group. And 
so I was preparing myself to go there. And then I got a call from the bank saying, hey, we changed your location. You're going to New York. So I will always remember I was shopping in a mall with my mother. And then I told mom, hey, I'm going to New York. So I was actually quite excited about that. But again, the, the mission was supposed to be 12 months. And so I did 12 months. But while I was in banking in New York, I didn't really enjoy the experience. I enjoyed the city very much, made a lot of friends here. And as you can imagine, a young guy moving to New York, 24 years old, a lot going on there. But I didn't really love the environment of finance and I didn't think I was very good at it. I saw a whole bunch of people around me, extremely motivated, very, very focused and, and good at it. And so I, I was like, man, it's not for me. So I actually called LVMH back because I did that internship before at Louis Vuitton. And they had, they had created the very first CRM business units and program there. It was in 1999. So when I moved to New York in 2000, did one year banking. And then in 2001, I joined LV again, but then in New York. I was quite lucky because the program I had worked on in Paris at the global headquarters was being deployed in different regions. My first job was to deploy their very first customer relationship management program, which is basically a customer database build, which sounds today extremely basic, but back then was a big deal. No luxury brand had a professionalized, centralized customer database. So I started like that. And then back in the day, it's very different today, but Back in the day, they used to give digital to the young people coming in the company and not really understanding it and not, not considering it very strategic back then. So in 2001, 2002, I launched their first customer database and then I started taking care of various digital projects. I can explain uh, in a bit more details because it's, it's kind of fascinating. <laughs> how it happened and then the growth of it as well. Wow. And you went from Louis Vuitton, then you went on to Chanel. So not straight from LV to Chanel. I actually, so at LV, I had a really great run that lasted over eight years. So like I said, digital started with, let's try e-commerce for luxury goods. Back in Europe, let's say that there was a lot of skepticism. <laughs> I heard many times that we could never sell expensive handbags or shoes online. So what LVMH did was, I think, a very smart move. They, they acquired a, a startup in San Francisco called eLuxury.com, which was the ancestor of Hughes, Netaporte, or Farfetch. They started really early on in 2000 or 99, and they were acquired by LVMH in 2001. And so I was sent to San Francisco to figure out with a few colleagues, of course, not alone, but figure out how to launch a few brands of the group on this platform. And so we launched Dior and, and Louis Vuitton and, and a few others. And that was actually very successful. Uh, it worked right away. And so it became a significant point of sale for LV back, back then and, and LVMH. So um, it grew and then it gave them the idea to start selling on their own website. So I also started working on the first Louis Vuitton.com that was e-commerce enabled. And then long story short, but we launched the brand on social media and we launched the first digital marketing campaigns. We were adding more and more. And the final thing I did that was quite 
interesting is to launch basically their first call center with customer service, or like a kind of elevated, all internalized customer service operation that was connected for, for, for the boutiques, for all the stores in the country, and then also online, obviously, and e-commerce. So it was already the beginning of what we call nowadays omni-channel. That was very early. The, the group and the brand was very early in this, was a leader basically in, in the luxury industry building these things. So I was very lucky to be, to be part of it. And that lasted until 2008. I took a little break from the corporate world. I had my own company for two years with a couple of friends. We, we launched some restaurants in New York that didn't go very well. After two years, we shut it down. But it was fascinating, a fascinating experience. I learned so much. It was fun as well. Extremely hard, but fun. And then that's when in 2011, yes, I got in touch with Chanel via a friend that was working there. And they reached, reached out to me to basically kind of do a little bit this what I had done before at LV and to accelerate their digital transformation and e-commerce and digital marketing and to reorganize a little bit the way they were operating online. I did that for four or five years in the US. I launched a lot of new new things for, for that brand. And then I was, I guess, could say promoted to a global job. So I had to move to back to Paris in 2017 to launch their first digital factory, we call it. But it's basically a digital team that's able to build digital platforms, websites, apps, and so on. And we started by redesigning entirely the Chanel.com website. And in fact, this program took a few years and it was launched first in the US, even though I was based in Paris, the team was mostly in Paris, but the first market was America. And then we deployed this in over 50 markets. Wow. It was actually launched in China yesterday. Wow. So that sort of completes the loop. I did a whole bunch of other very interesting things at, at Chanel and about a year ago, I took over a new job in, in the innovation team. So we call it global long-term development team, but it's also called open, open innovation. And I won't be able to give many details because it's something we are just building right now or rebuilding. And so there's a lot of confidential things that we're working on, but, but I'm happy to discuss high level what it means for the, for me at least. Well, I was going to ask, so what approach do you use to keep your ideas innovative and, and creative? What's your approach there when you're in such a new role and bringing that role to luxury? Yeah. So if I try to go back in what, how it started, and if I look back at my, my career, it, it's true that I've almost always created something new that did not exist before. And that was not necessarily consensual internally. There was a lot of controversy to launch e-commerce in 2001. It was very scary for the boutiques. They said, oh, this is going to take my business away. You're going to steal my customers. When we created a, a call center, it was the same thing. They, they love to talk to their customers on the phone, but they, they couldn't. They were too busy on the sales floor. So eventually, every time we did something we thought was good for the brand and good for the, for the company, and we tested and learned on a small scale, and we made sure it was bringing net benefits to the to the brand and to the customers and to the employees 
So we always kind of launch new things. And I love that. I love to have the idea of creating something from scratch, building teams. That was always something that I was passionate about. And kind of, it's a little bit, I guess, sadistic, but always picking projects that were complex and difficult internally to align people around. So it's, it's not the easiest things to do, but it's exciting for me to bring change. I guess I've noticed that I've, doing, I've been doing that for 24 years. So I guess this is something I like to do. And yeah, always trying to test, learn, measure, measure with KPIs. What you do is very important when you do something that's not fully understood internally or you have to do a lot of change management. It's very important to have goals, but to really keep track of the progress, share the KPIs with not only the, the top management, but also the entire organization so that they all fully understand and align behind projects eventually. So yeah, that was the same when we launched on social media. It was very controversial. Why would a luxury brand go on Facebook or Twitter back then? Or I actually did something that was, I don't know if that was a good move now but that I look at it with a lot of distance, but we started inviting influencers. They were called bloggers in, in 2006, seven, trying to in, starting to invite them to the fashion shows and to invite them to big events. That was fully, usually exclusive for Vogue and the likes, the big editors and VIPs or VICs, very important clients. And so we started bringing these influencers. Now I'm looking at what the influencers do. I'm not sure. It's, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. I'm not criticizing them. There are many, many good ones, but social media is a bit uh, complicated. But anyways, I think every time it was something new that I had to prove myself and prove that what I was doing was bringing added value. So. That was always what, what made me motivated. That's just my nature. I think I, I see some people and I tend to hire people that are in that same mindset of challenging the status quo. There are other people that are very good at taking something that already exists and optimizing it and running it and managing it as perfectly as possible. But in my case, it was more creating something new and building and growing and scaling. Amazing. And you are back in New York. Is New York now home, would you say? That's a big question for me. I, I have two homes, I would say. Really, I, I yes, I love, I love New York. So after this mission, I had to build a, a global digital team in, in Paris. Actually, the team is a little more complex than that. There are people a little bit all over the, the place. There are people in Asia and in, and in London as well and in, in New York. But yeah, after I really loved living in, in Paris and Europe for five or six years, even though there was COVID in, in the, during that time frame, But I really loved the, the life there. I was, again, able to build a team there with uh, shaping it in, like, luckily how I wanted team to, to look like. So that was really, really exciting. And I really thank the company <laughs> to have been very supportive of that and giving me a lot of room to operate. But then the new job required for me to come back to New York. So I did. And I love New York as well. So it's very, very difficult for me to choose between the two cities. I love different things about both. And I do tend to actually travel quite a bit between the two. It's, for me, it's really perfect to have a foot in the US and a foot in Europe and, and, and going back, back and forth. I'm, I'm lucky to be able to do that on a personal level for now. So 
when when I have children and more 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 kids, I might be more difficult. So I'll have to choose. But for the moment, I'm able to enjoy the freedom of going to both continents. Sounds wonderful. What do you do in your spare time when you're not traveling and you're not at work? What, what do you do that relaxes you out, out of office hours? Different things. Well, I try to I try to do some healthy things and exercising because of this travel, the jet lag and the pressure of the work. I really try to do at least two or three times a week something physical that's going to make me really clear my mind and, and so on. So that's something I do. And New York is great for that. I have to say Paris has changed also. It's a little bit easier there than it used to be. There are more options in Paris than 20 years ago or 15 years ago. But New York, there's too many options almost in New York. If you go to the gym at 6 a.m. in New York, it's pretty, pretty packed, which is quite impressive. In Paris, it's not kind of the same. People tend to go at night. But anyways, I do that. And then I have a bunch of friends and family in both cities. So I try to just spend a lot of time with them, as much time as possible with my wife and dogs and my friends and just going to restaurants and whatever you do in big cities, just enjoy very quality time with loved ones, I would say is my thing. And the third thing is, I would say I, I read a lot. I read a lot, just not, not so many books, but I tend to read just a lot of news, articles, things that interest me. And, and I listen to a lot of podcasts also. <laughs> podcast, in fact, is, is something that I, I listen to weekly. If I was going to ask one more thing, what are your thoughts on, on the whole world of AI entering in fashion? Obviously, you're in that realm. I'm really intrigued how it's going to sort of influx with luxury. And just chat GPT, there's so many things going on now. It's just such an exciting time. I would say for me, it's a bit surreal what's happening currently because I, I kind of have, I have been reading about this for a long time. The, um, Ray Kurzweil in particular is, is now I think the, one of the top lead researchers at, at Google, but has been writing about this moment. They were predicting AI to be the, the and then toll AI. To, to arrive around 2035, 2040. And there would be, they were planning already, anticipating him and many others that the early signs would come around 2025, 2030, between 2025, 2035, which seems to be, they were right. It's, they were right on and it's happening now. So as everyone can tell around the world, there are people already raising red flags, which is great, compared to social media or other other online activities people are very aware of the of the risks and the dangers and already kind of organizing around that i think it's very important because indeed it can it can be become something unmanageable so i think it's very important that people are aware of the risks very early on is it already too late i'm not sure do we probably need some sort of global legal framework regulations. I mean, many people are calling for that. I agree with that. The ethics and the morals are extremely important to consider. Bias, of course, is, is definitely the most obvious one right now. There is necessarily a lot of biases in, in algorithms. So we have to be very, very careful with that. And so I think what's important is also to see all the opportunities. There's going to be a lot of opportunities. So today, I think we're in this transition phase where people are assessing the risk, assessing the opportunities, but for sure, it's going to be 
most likely the most disruptive technology we've had. I heard some people say since we, since the industrial revolution, or yeah, it, it can be massively transformative for society. So at a small scale, because that can be very overwhelming when you look at this, you're like, where do I even start? Right? So um, what we're doing right now is a surround us with experts, people that are really understanding the topic, diverse experts, people that don't really agree with each other so that we can have different points of view and have made our own mind and then breaking that, break it down a little bit in, in smaller buckets, in smaller, more digestible topics and try to tackle it, prioritizing and tackling it to see what's most relevant for our industry, for our business and where we can use it for, for the greater good. <laughs> With some guardrails in place. Yes. And with some guardrails in place from the get-go, from the very beginning. So that's how we are trying to approach that right now. Like much more to come soon. Yeah, it's super exciting. It's just a very exciting time to, to watch it unveil within the fashion and beauty industry. Well, thank you so much, Gregory, for talking to us. Super exciting to hear your career journey. Thank you. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for being here for the Collab Career Stories podcast. Please follow us on social media at Join the Collab and sign up to become a member and share your story at jointhecollab.com.